hormones from various angles um, we've done some interesting work that unintentionally led us towards hormones being the resolution I want to show you what that looks like because you know how we talk about especially when you get to things genetically that there's multi factors there's things that connect that you wouldn't expect that to, to, to connect that you know push outcomes in different directions that aren't intuitive or obvious um, and there's a couple areas here which I'm going to touch on, which is especially important for women. So we did some work with Red Bull Performance. So Red Bull is a really cool company. They make the energy drinks, obviously, uh, but they sponsor 1,500 professional athletes. And you've seen the type of athletes they sponsor, usually like high intensity, you know, uh, sort of excitement worthy type things. And they want their athletes to win. So they built this high performance center they started curating the best in human performance and science so that they can internally have the best in uh, athletes. It got so good that athletes now pay big money to go there and sort of go through this process of human optimization, human 2.0. There's a gentleman out there named Dr. Andy Walsh who is one of the original biohackers. So we know that Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield, people like that are uh, the sort of outspoken biohackers of the world today, but he's like a medical biohacker. So he started doing it before um, it became sort of a true hacking uh, sort of outside of the medical sphere world. He's a doctor and was doing it at the medical level. And so he got headhunted by Red Bull and they built this human performance center. If you remember the stratosphere jump where somebody jumped from literally nearly space to the earth, he actually orchestrated that whole thing. Um, so we did some work with him and we were brought on to deal with female athletes. And they kept hitting plateaus with these female athletes. They found it was easier for them to deal with the men, typical things like recovery, muscle development, etc. But their big challenges were women where they were like silver type medalist almost at the top they had the drive they trained just as hard they they had the personality uh they just couldn't get over that threshold of why can't i be number one sometimes they couldn't recover as fast enough sometimes they just couldn't put on muscle fast enough and we talked about some of this in the last episode but we found something really cool in our research that had to do with hormones and it was tied to the circadian rhythm of the menstrual cycle. The female menstrual cycle is not flat in terms of what your hormones look like. And this is why we argue that if you're gonna go get a Dutch test, well, take it week one, three, two, three, four, you're gonna have a different result because your hormones are doing different things in each one of those weeks. What you ate the day before could affect it. The pesticides that you breathed in the day before could affect it. So the female sort of hormone cycle is highly variable, but there is a known circadian rhythm. You start out with these sort of very low, slim to none hormone levels. Then you get into this sort of testosterone phase, estrogen phase, and then a progesterone phase, and then you do it over again. And it, this is all very purposeful, why all these things happen. It also hugely drives 
outcome in terms of performance and what's going on with your body. So that first phase we look at, it's what's called the follicular phase. So this is where you're getting into high testosterone. Why? Because this is a phase where it's best to be mating, to get pregnant. So you need testosterone to drive that desire. You know, testosterone gives you that libido. So what we found is the training that women did in this first, you know, call it five to 10 days of the month, the first few days you're still in the developing the hormones, but from day five to 10 is when training training had its best outcome. So women were the strongest, uh, they could lift the heaviest things, they had the best endurance, uh, and they were overall better. So when women met each other for competition, and were in different times of the month in their cycle, they had different outcomes. And typically the woman who was in the beginning follicular phase would do better. And so now this is luck of the draw. You know, you have to struggle with what part of the month are you in when it comes time to compete. But it had a huge weighing on the result. This also speaks to training. Like what should you be doing when it comes to all of the work you need to do women should treat their training a little different than men. Every week is not the same. You need to get your heavy muscle building, weightlifting, deadlifting in, in that first 10 days, because that's when you have the right hormones to get the benefit. So then what happens in the next phase? The next phase is the ovulation phase. So uh, days 11 to 16, 17 uh, is when you're ovulating. This is where your estrogen levels are high. We found over and over and over again that this is when women would peak in their level of injury. So why is it that women get so many more injuries than men when it comes to high performance training? It's because you have a five day period, sometimes six, where your estrogen levels are high and things like tendons, you know, other tissue, uh, are just so much more sensitive and prone to injury. And not knowing that, you obviously go do the same thing with the same routine. And if that's the day of your race or your run, why is it that was the day that you couldn't handle it? You collapsed. The day that you were lifting heavy weights and the tendon ripped, got damaged. And so something as simple as stretching and warming up and cooling down after and an exaggerated, exaggerated version of those three things help these women get through that phase. And you don't think of this as I'm a different person as each week of the month goes by. But again, look up the circadian rhythm of the menstrual cycle and you truly are different as each week goes by. So then we get into the final phase, uh, which is the luteal phase, which is where your progesterone levels are high. This is kind of post ovulation, the assumption. And I mean, obviously, the purpose of all of this is fertility. So the assumption is that by that time, you've already implanted, the egg has been fertilized, uh, and it's entered the lining of the womb, uh, and now different things need to happen, and so your progesterone levels start to go up. And simultaneously, your estrogen levels drop, because you no longer need them. Uh, this can impact endurance and performance significantly. So we found that the desire, uh, the ability, the results, all slumped in this final sort of 12-ish days of the month 
the cycle, of course, is 28 days, not 30. So we got to think of it in a 28-day context. So performance levels uh, collapsed. This also speaks to drive, which would lead it to mood and behavior, and why you feel different at that time of the month. And you might be a little more cuddly, a more little desire to stay at home and rest. And you know, uh, you can feel also what's coming in terms of the next cycle. So the area of focus, and, and we've actually built the optimal training cycle and the focus here became maintenance. We didn't push. We didn't try to gain. Gain happened in the beginning of the month. It was about rest, recovery, maintenance, rest, recovery, maintenance. So what we do as men over the week, women need to spread out over the month. That first few days, you're blessed with these testosterone levels that can cause crazy performance and crazy gains. So utilize that time push hard whether it's work muscle that's even where the brain is firing harder you just have this vitality about you because of these high testosterone levels so get your high performance work done whatever it is during that time then comes time for sort of low intensity uh, because of the estrogen levels and the propensity towards injury so stretching cooling down uh, low low intensity uh, low weight then you get into the third phase, the luteal phase, where the progesterone levels are high, estrogen starts to drop. You're less prone to injury because the estrogen isn't there and causing inflammatory response. Again, this is exaggerated in women that have estrogen toxicity because, again, that inflammatory insult of the 4 or 16-hydroxyestrogen just you know, takes us to another level, which is why some women have an exaggerated version of this, such as I'm always getting injured, I'm always getting inflamed, or, you know, mood and behavior is so much more off during this time because of the compound effect of the estrogen toxicity. But again, in the third third phase, what we're looking at is performance is down. So estrogen is down, so uh, injury is not such a big concern anymore, but the performance is down, so you can't push because you're not going to get the result. So it's better to stay at maintenance phase and focus on recovery and focus on maintaining what you have and looking forward to the next month, which is right around the corner, to build up you know, that next round of gains, whether it's at work, play, or fitness. So this is a very unique uh, sort of circumstance that we found women in. For men, it's very different. For men, you know, we have more of what we call a menstrual cycle. So whereas women have this menstrual cycle where each week looks different, uh, for men, it happens through the day. So your testosterone peaks twice during the day. We have this cycle that gives us, assuming that you sleep at normal hours and you're getting up, you know, 7, 8 a.m. type thing, uh, you look at the phenomenon of what we call morning wood. We all know what that is. Why does it happen? Well, because your testosterone peaks between 6 to 8 a.m., again, assuming that you sleep at normal hours. That's the time, given the circadian rhythm of the body, given the sort of day-night cycle and what happens with, you know, daylight and night and what happens to your hormones. Uh, it's that last tail end of your sleep that you actually produce your hormones. So if you produce them at that time, the pot is full. That testosterone bucket is very full. And this is what leads to that morning wood phenomenon because testosterone levels are high. Now you have that testosterone to use depending on how you excrete testosterone. Some men clear it very quickly. quickly. Some men hold on to it during the day. Some convert it into estrogen or DHT, uh, testosterone metabolite. So 
depending what you do, you have this heavy pool of testosterone. This is why working out in the morning is extremely beneficial to men because you have that testosterone to lean on. Then you go through the day and it starts to bleed. So unless you have certain pathways that allow you to hold on to the testosterone, which a lot of men do, uh, you may start to bleed it out. And it sort of weakens and the energy levels goes down. And by midday, you're not the same person. And again, around 4 to 6 p.m., there's this phenomenon that people talk about where 4 to 6 p.m. is where they start to talk about their their spouse or their partner and they start to plan their evening, if you know what I mean. Because testosterone starts to peak again. And it's around 4 to 6 p.m. that you start thinking about things other than work and food uh, and your mind goes in this direction because testosterone is driving the way you're thinking. And the, and a lot of this, a lot of men experience this where it's just like kind of four o'clock desire because testosterone starts peaking again. So it's a great time to go to the gym. It's maybe also a great time to go home and see your partner uh, because that's exactly what's going on with your, your physiology at the time. Uh, if you look at the areas just outside of these so for some men if you are estrogen dominant and your testosterone converts into estrogen well then you know just like the women you're more prone to injury at the time when your estrogen peaks which is right after the testosterone peak so this is a reason why so many men get so many injuries repeatedly because they train outside of their testosterone windows so I would say, you know, if you're peaking 6 to 8, then kind of 8 to 10 is when you have the free-flowing testosterone. Some men will go tra train at 11 to 12, which is when they're now converting the testosterone into estrogens. And then, you know, ability to get injure, injured increases. And so you got to consider that. Uh, so it's, it's those ideal windows of like 6 to 10 and then 4 to 8. Uh, and you kind of see that standard in the gym anyway. Those are the peak hours because you intuitively know when you feel good, when you can lift more. Uh, and a simple hack, by the way, if you want to ha elevate your testosterone level, start each workout with a squat because a squat is probably the single greatest ex exercise for triggering, you know, accessing your pool of testosterone. It just creates that free-flowing testosterone. So you can do that. Uh, it's advised that you do your cardio, um, again, close to those testosterone hours to avoid injury. There's a very big difference between uh, weight training and cardio because cardio is a long duration stress on the body, right? The weight training, you're doing high intensity stress, uh, but it's easy to control and you got that feel where your shoulders are in the right position, you know what you're doing. The trouble with cardio is you're doing it for a long time so that abuse on your joints is ongoing and we weren't meant to do it for the most part anyway so you have to think about keeping your cardio very close to your testosterone peaks and not outside of them to avoid the typical injuries people get when they're running on the treadmill or going about it for a little too long so these are some of the insights we got when we worked on that sort of high performance training and it was really cool because it opened our eyes to a different way to look at hormones beyond you know fibromyalgia menopause fertility prostate issues etc uh, and having a different angle for the same thing. And this is why we say genetics are so multifactorial. The body is so multifactorial and the systems interconnect. And you have to just ask the right questions to get intelligent answers. You know, sitting on a list of genes or sitting on a list of how the body works doesn't drive you anywhere. You got to be curious and drive thought forward by pushing 
uh, what we believe is true by asking the right questions and then finding and learning more. So another layer of how we looked at hormones uniquely, uh, we as a genetic research company weren't really thriving for the sort of more superficial, call it hair, skin, beauty type insights because we were trying to save lives. We were trying to create longevity. We were trying to help people add 10, 15, 20 healthy years to their life. And so everything else became second priority. But as a side effect of the work we do, it, you know, all with all ships rise with the, with the rising tide and it came up uh, in the work that we do. And so I'll tell you a story of a young lady who came to us uh, because she had acne so bad that she had to take a rubber donut with her everywhere she went so that she could actually sit down with comfort. Because depending on how hard the surface was she had to sit on, she just potentially couldn't do it. So when we looked at her, she had crazy cystic acne everywhere, a horrible hair, horrible skin, but she had a ripped six-pack. And she said her friends were always jealous of no matter what she ate, no matter what she did, she was always ripped. You could see every striated muscle. There wasn't an ounce of fat on her. But that wasn't the benefit she came to talk about. It was her problem that she came to talk about, which is this acne problem, which was horrible. So the interesting thing is her father is an internist and actually a very well-known internist, which means that he knows the human body well, trained on it for many years. Uh, he could not crack the code. She was actually sent to a specialist that told her that it seems like she has a liver condition because she does not detoxify and the cystic acne looks like her body screaming toxicity. And so we ran her DNA. And what we found was she was extremely androgen dominant, highly testosterone positive to the point where she was literally wired like a high performance male. So all of her hormones got fueled into this testosterone bucket, very little of it, slim to none converted into estrogen, and she didn't bleed any of it out. That pool of testosterone just sat there. And she, she was literally wired to be a high-performance male, a superman. This is why she had the crazy ripped six-pack and these ripped muscles with no fat, but why then the acne in the hair? Well, good skin comes from estrogen. Cystic acne, acne, the myth of, you know, you put something on your face, cause pimples. Pimples are one thing, you know, interrupting the pores and poor health and putting things on your skin. Yeah, for sure. Uh, something can enter the pore and cause a little bit of irritation and ingrown hair can cause a pimple. But cystic acne is something very different. It starts underneath the skin. It's rooted beyond, beyond be, uh, underneath the skin. And it's rooted in DHT. It's rooted in testosterone. The same thing that causes prostate enlargement in men. The same thing that causes follicle death. So she was on crazy medication, harsh drugs for her liver health when that had nothing to do with what was going on. So it did take a few months. When it comes to hormone reset, it's not as quick as here's something to help you sleep at night and you can do it the next day. Uh, it takes longer. And so it took us a few months of intervention, but ultimately she was put on the right a hormone supplement as sort of an, an immediate band-aid intervention and then slowly shifted over to the right supplements to alter the genetic pathways that instructed each one of these conversions. And now all of a sudden she had the 
hormone balance that made her for the first time feel like a pretty young girl. And let me tell you something interesting about this young woman. She didn't have her first menstrual cycle until she was 16 years old. From the age of 16 until 22, which is when we met her, she had six menstrual cycles. Six periods in six years. So how many diseases would that have been diagnosed as? How many conditions and how many pills would have been given to her to fix this problem? What, she, what was going on was she was wired to be an elite athlete, a high performer. And there was always the baggage that came with that of the cystic acne and the hair loss, which of, of course was her medical focus. So ultimately we understand that these insights are not what doctors are armed with and so they couldn't help her. But we need to get it out there. We need to understand that there's a layer of technology that informs something much deeper than the uh, the sort of symptomatic expression that we see. And it can very easily be translated. Look how easily we're speaking of it now. Everybody understands it. We just need to bring it into practice. So this brings me to a thought about how do you bring this into practice. And I say this because... I can't tell you how many times people have approached us and you've heard me ask people this question so many times of how do you convince your doctor to use this? We have so many people that come to us and say, I love what's going on. I, I have this. I need my healthcare practitioner to work with me on this, but they refuse because they say that this is not medicine. Well, that's the whole point. If we can get you out of a label that's a disease, you don't need a medicine. So the challenge, and I'll speak to this because anyone that's listening today, you know, unless we all work together and think this way, uh, we're not going to affect change. And I understand it's not the doctor's fault because they are wired to think this way. So what's going on? Why do they think this way? Well, fear creates followers and love creates leaders. What do I mean by that? Medical practitioners are in a protocol of indoctrinated fear. Do not do anything wrong. Safety first is important, but do not do anything wrong extends into do not do anything beyond what is prescribed in evidence-based medicine. Do not even tell people what to eat. We have right now in Canada a threat of Health Canada telling, telling us they're literally polling right now whether or not doctors should be allowed to recommend vitamins. Vitamin C and D because they're not evidence-based. How many hundreds if not thousands of publications are built around vitamin C and D? Yes, there's no clinical study run because nobody's patenting and building a vitamin D molecule to profit from that $10 million study. But everybody knows that the number of publications the amount of efficacy around it is true. But the challenge is doctors live in a fear model where they become followers. They don't love, love uh, work in a love model, you know, in an in, in entrepreneurial uh, discovery model where they become leaders. And so that following mentality prevents them from being able to take what you're saying and implement it because it's, it's based in fear and it's based in not taking risk as opposed to learning what's, what's beyond their purview and scope. So that's one. The other one is context is more important than content. When you're trained to think that indoctrination that happens, where you're trained to think 
don't look at the context content look at the context where did you see it which publication was it in what what con what conference did it come from what summit were you listening to not what was the content itself this is a major challenge in medical thinking and what prevents people that are asking these questions from having what they want prescribed in their medical journey in their wellness journey is that the context that it came from it came from a testing company, it came from an influencer, it came from a podcast, is not the context that it's, that's accepted, regardless of what the content is. And so you have to allow that content, that context now to shift. How do you do that? You either have to find the context that matches with the content you want and provide it and understand that the indoctrination of going to school for eight years and being taught to think a certain way is very hard to unwind. So help your practitioner by providing it in the context that it is, which means some work of finding it in the right context. Another doctor that said it. Another conference that mentioned it. Another study that included it. Another thing is who it came from is more important than what was said. Who it came from, meaning that what are their credentials? Because again, safety first, which is important in terms of evidence-based medicine, who it came from validates that it's true or not true which often we see later you look at well this study was retracted or found out it wasn't real or this doctor got sued for whatever reason who often isn't important so for both of these points you know context who is more important than the content itself the content isn't reviewed or accepted at surface value if first the who or the context isn't approved mentally. And this may not be a conscious conversation. These words may not come out of the clinician's mouth, but it is, it is how they're taught to think. And so it is how they'll filter regardless if they think they're doing it or not. And so understand that this is how you need to bring it to them. The other thing is, and this is a very challenging one, is the belief of keeping things in the ivory tower. Um, and if you've been through this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Talking to the scientists, talking to the clinician, uh, talking to anyone that has been through academic training to give them a title to do a certain job or task. It's very difficult for that person to accept that somebody else can do it without that training. And so two things happen. First of all, the knowledge is locked up in the ivory tower. The knowledge is not for you. The knowledge is not meant to be spread en masse or democratized. And so the belief then becomes that democratized information is invaluable. Dr. Google isn't accurate, even though Dr. Google is probably one of the most valuable sources of wellness information we have now because you can go find things on your own. And so understanding the context of this person went to school for, I don't know, four, ten, four, eight, ten years to get the title they got, to now be able to, with a license, access the ivory tower and draw the information out of it to provide to you. And they are meant to be the conduit to that information. And if you all of a sudden find a path directly to that information, you're compromising the integrity of their relationship with their degree, with their title, and with the information that they are supposed to only be able to access from the ivory tower. So imagine the amount of friction that's caused and you've all experienced this, what appears to be ego is actually insecurity. It's the insecurity of what is my value if you can get this yourself?
And I would argue that ego and insecurity are the two driving factors of the indoctrination that creates a scientist, doctor, clinician um, at the conventional level. Not the people that go beyond, not the people that create and do wonderful things, but I'm talking about, we're talking about the average person here has to solve their problem, which is how do I talk to this person uh, that won't let me access the ivory tower? Well, they believe that they've earned the right to know and you haven't, which is somewhat true. They've gone through the work of doing the training and learning it. They've earned the right to know and you haven't. The challenge is we're now in a new reality where knowing is easy. You can go learn. You don't need to know something to do it. If you want to go install an air conditioner, you can go watch a YouTube video and you'll know how to do it. If you want to go learn how to do a surgery, I would argue that you can learn how to do it. You probably don't have the practice and the muscle memory and the you know utility of the training of many hours that the clinician has, but there's probably a YouTube video to show you how to do it if you're stranded somewhere after a plane crash and need to figure it out. So this wasn't true a generation ago. The training, however, is still the same training that a generation ago got, which is you have earned the right to know and your patient hasn't. So if they say they know, it's a gut visceral reaction of you need to listen and not speak. It's a very challenging environment to be in there. This knowledge transfer is not meant to apply to the masses. It's meant to be siloed and maintained uh, in what's in the title of the degree that was sought after a lot of learning, like respect to these people that spend eight years learning to then dedicate their life to health and wellness the challenges that they're entering a reality that they weren't taught to deal with which is your patient may know more than you about the problem if a patient learns listens to a podcast that we have about uh, diet nutrition and insulin response for example and then goes to a doctor about reversing their diabetes as opposed to treating it the, the information they know is, is true and valid but it's not what their doctor is trained on and so they believe you're now compromising the integrity of what they know by bringing in information that, first of all, didn't come from the ivory tower, so it can't be true. And second, is conflicting with what they're telling you, and so it can't be implemented. So this is a major challenge. And there isn't a simple answer because you're dealing with personalities. So you first have to scope out of all the things that I just told you and the reality of now the person you're trying to deal with, how far down that path are they? You know, how, what, to what degree are they actually experiencing these various things that I've told you about? The, the ego, the insecurity that's driven by the indoctrination. The I'm a follower because I work out of fear as opposed to I'm a leader because I work out of love. Uh, the need for validation. The need to look at context over content. Who did it come from? Which conference versus what is the content even saying? The, the need to be the sole conduit to the ivory tower and the conduit to information versus the uh, sort of quarterback or the consultant that can review the information you're bringing. That's not how they're trained. So with all these conflicts, it becomes very difficult uh, for you to all of a sudden expect to get what you want, which is I found some great information. Let's bring this into my wellness plan. The, the path to that is to come to them where they're at. It's not to expect for this thing to happen, which means shifting the context. And it's not that I found this. Somebody else has to find it for you. You have to bring it 
from a video or a conference or and I'm telling you you got to do the work bring it to them in the context they need it don't expect them to change first of all the time that they can offer you they can't do the change and they're going to go into the next 30 40 clinics uh, sorry patients for the day who aren't demanding what you're de demanding because they aren't armed with the information that you're armed with and so understand the context so I'm kind of in one way uh, feeling sorry for the clinician who has to now deal with what you know but what you know is exactly what they should be implementing so the only way to get that done again is to give it to them in the context they need so with that uh, I'm going to give you one last anecdote about hormones um, that we didn't miss. So we talked about uh, that we that we missed. We didn't talk about um, now that we've spoken of how clinicians think and how you bring things to them. Um, the other area in hormones, which why I wanted to say this to you first, is mood and behavior for women. Such a powerful driver. Uh, of how you feel mentally day to day, week to week, as we talked about the various, um, you know, the various levels in your circadian rhythm. Uh, and I wanted to first, again, help you understand how doctors think before we talk about this, which is that the mood and behavior issues you're feeling should not be labeled as conditions. Yes, there's some people that have actual conditions that need, whether it's medication or counseling or whatever, but the anxiety, the depression, the burnout, the neuroticism, you know, the aloof or flakiness or lack of desire that happens at certain times of the month. Understanding that this stuff is driven by this wild roller coaster that you go on every month, which is this hormonal circadian rhythm. If you first understand that and understand that going to your clinician will only ever get you a diagnosis for a condition because that's what they're armed to do. That's their training. The toolkit is diagnose first, then prescribe. It's not peel back the layers of onion of, bio, of biochemistry to figure out why it's happening. So I, I would urge you, when it comes to mood and behavior issues, to not react with this gut reaction of, I have anxiety, I have depression. I'm speaking particularly to the women here. Um, because of this roller coaster you go on every month. And instead, try and match it and mirror it to what's going on. Track it for a few months. Track for a few months the, the way that I feel. What day does it happen on? And then what hormones are those tied to? I explained to you what happens during the month. It starts off uh, highly, it starts, it starts off with your actual cycle, which is zero to hormones. Like there's nothing, you're just clearing everything. Then by day five, the testosterone starts to peak, right? And then by day 10, it's, it's actually peaked. So there's, there's this high testosterone, visceral, like energy about you, this vitality. Then it's the estrogens. Then it's the progesterones. So you have these sort of four phases. So track it for the next few months before you react and see, are these things happening on the same day? Is, it, is, is there a pattern or is there a trend? And then you'll start to understand that perhaps it's not a condition. Then let's start to look at what's going on hormonally on that repeat trend day of the week. And perhaps there's something to deal with that isn't a condition that needs to be labeled, but a hormonal level that needs to be adjusted. Is it something you can cope with knowing that it's not a problem, it's not an anxiety diagnosis, it's not a depression diagnosis, that it's 
two days out of the month that seem to happen on the same two days. Uh, can I cope with it? If not, then perhaps we need to be therapeutic. If it's being therapeutic, well, we've now been able to pinpoint why it happens as opposed to what it is. The what it is, you have anxiety, here's a pill. Why it happens, it happens on these days of the month, it's a hormonal issue. I now can lean on supplements. I can now lean on perhaps a hormone replacement therapy. I can now lean on birth control pills or something that in a safe way, again, understanding exactly what you're doing, in a safe way, gets you to the hormone levels that gets you out of that place where you don't want to be. Now you can understand, after me telling you about why it's difficult for you to speak to clinicians, it's not their fault, it's the way they're trained, uh, why you need to take charge and control this before you go the clinical route, before you go the diagnostic uh, pill route. Let's go to the biochemistry route, the genetic route of what the body actually does, which we already know, and try and pair those things together. So with that, I hope I provided some insights on how you can even take something like hormones and apply it in a very different area. You can do this with many things going on in the body. And thank you again for listening, guys. Looking forward to having you join us next time.